0: Miller is the CEO leading British heritage fashion brand Bellstaff into a new era. Miller is bringing a unique style and methodology into her leadership of the storied brand inspired in part by her previous experience at the cutting edge of elite sport when in charge of winning behaviour with record-breaking cycling outfit Team Sky. As well as those achievements, Miller led that team's transition into being Team Ineos and also on Eliud Kipchoge's extraordinary successful bid to break the two-hour time barrier for the marathon. Miller is here on The Entrepreneurs Today to talk about driving innovation, the challenge and triumph of seeing a first Bellstaff seasonal collection right through from start to finish, and strategies for enduring success. Plus, later in the show, we'll hear about the reinvention of a famous running shoe brand when our friend Bob Sheard visits us once again for another Branding Corner. This week, Bob will be talking about the renaissance of New Balance. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. We start the show with Bell staff, purveyors of iconic garments like the Trial Master Jacket, and led, since 2020, by Fran Miller, who joined having held a number of senior leadership positions in Elite Sport, So how does a veteran of developing brand values and culture in that unique theatre, and also of Team Sky's famous commitment to marginal gains, constantly seeking improvement, transfer those skills into fashion? And not only that, but a brand that was in pretty urgent need of new insights and some new direction. Well, let's find out. It's a great pleasure to welcome Fran Miller to the programme. Fran, great to have you with us. I guess let's start with how you came to be running Bellstaff. I guess your route into leading a fashion brand is, I think it's fair to say, somewhat unorthodox.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a deliberate career decision. I have worked in professional cycling for 20 years. My brother was a pro. I was one of the founding members of Team Sky, which obviously went on to dominate the sport for just over a decade. At the end of our Sky journey, we were acquired by Britain's richest man, Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos. We became Team Ineos. And we then did another project with Jim, which was the Elliot Kipcho U159 Challenge and through that journey of like 18 months of transitioning through into ineos and doing 159 i became very aware that i was probably a little bit stale in cycling wasn't entirely sure i'd been you know following my dream for much of it it had been kind of a whole host of other reasons for doing it and i happened to mention that to my chairman at the time. And two weeks later, I was walking into staff as the CEO. So careful what you say. Um, <laughs> it's as easy as that. Yeah, exactly. There's lessons in there. <laughs>
0: um, well, well, look, so now that's the, the kind of background. What did you then expect to find? So you walk through those sort of hallowed doors, if you like. Mm. Did you have in your mind a very clear sense of what you were inheriting? Because I think it's always complicated, isn't it? If you're the, what's the word, a steward of a, of a brand like that, with that kind of capital very beloved from its consumers. How mindful were you right from the get-go that this was something you had to, I don't know, approach with a degree of caution? I don't know, as well as obvious enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I was aware of the brand. And interestingly, there was a lot of crossover love, I felt, from the people who love cycling. So the Simon Mottrams, Tim Ashtons of the world, who are all very stylish guys, who've built incredible brands, who within a nanosecond of hearing that I was taking over Bell staff, were like... Okay, we have to meet and talk about this. This is the most incredible brand. So I knew it had this hugely loyal following. I knew it was a hugely iconic thing. I probably well i definitely had a set of perceptions about what the brand was and what it stood for that i thought you know i i know how to fix this i know what this is but similarly i knew the brand was in real trouble i was given a a very sobering briefing prior to walking into the bu- into the building <laughs> of the reality of the PL and the reality of where it had been for for really the majority of the previous decade and it was it was really a survival move it was either go in and fix it or we're going to have to close it down so whilst I was very cognizant of the of wanting to protect it and steward it and not do anything to it that would you know upset people. I also had to face the harsh reality of there's going to need to be significant change because what we're doing now isn't right for the brand. Mm. The brand is dying. So it was kind of a, it was a little bit of a double edged sword, really, because I sort of I wanted to go in and protect it. But I also knew that protection was going to require significant change.
0: So how do you square that circle then as an entrepreneur? You've got your own leadership strategies. You've got management techniques, things that you've refined over a long time to a very consistent degree of, of success. And I think our listeners will know some of the approaches This fascinating with you know marginal gains and and so and so forth but do you think right i'm going to get the lie of the land and i'm going to apply that i guess obviously you base your decision making on past experience but are you also do you have to be mindful about drawing in fresh influences other insights bringing in other collaborators who have a different perspective and skill set how again at the start of a challenge like that when the stakes are pretty high how do you go about kind of recalibrating your your own leadership approach to fit what's ahead
1: it's really interesting, actually, because I, in many ways, I didn't feel like I'd fully settled on what my leadership style was. I'd worked majority of my career, you know, the very beginning of my career, I was running my own business, but I was very young, set it up when I was 21, stopped doing it when I was 28 and went immediately into working for Dave Brailsford and worked for him for 15 years. And yes, right hand person, CEO of the business and everything else. But I think when you work with someone who's that talismanic and iconic and visionary, you kind of are by default working within their leadership style. And, and I learned a huge amount from it and I was very grateful for the time I spent doing it. But I saw Bell as an opportunity for me to take everything I'd learned from all of the people around me and, and you know, create my own leadership style and create my own approach. And actually it was one of the big appeals of doing it, to be honest, because I thought I'm not going to get the chance to do this again. It's somewhere that's totally new, you know, making that jump from one industry to another that's not going to come time and time again. For me. Well, it might, but I didn't get the sense it would. And I thought, actually, I've got a really strong belief in the way certain things can be done to get excellence out of people. I've got a belief in how if you apply a certain methodology, I believe it can move things forward. But I'd only ever done that in sport. And I was a bit like, oh, I wonder if I wonder if it's possible. So yes, it was quite conscious. It was like, I'm going to take the sort of five or six key pillars of what we've done in cycling and what we did in the 159 challenge, add in some of the things that I felt maybe could needed to be done differently and, and sort of I wanted to do differently and see if I could bring about success, which so far, we're getting there. It's, well,
0: it's not going too bad. And I guess you're now at the point where you're seeing product lines, seasonality that you've overseen from, mm. from first to last. Well, I mean, that must be thrilling and exciting and maybe a little nerve-wracking because <laughs> it's going out to be judged by your you know the ultimate arbiter which is your consumer but how's that been i mean it's been pretty successful I mean, I...
1: yeah i mean inc- incredibly successful i've i've i feel very very privileged to have been given the freedom to do it the way i wanted to do it i'd be given the autonomy to take i think a set of decisions that because i was completely outside the industry i think i was able to take with complete naivety <laughs> like this will work surely and and now i look back on it and i'm like, wow. I'm amazed that people within the business didn't say a bit more like, um, "Are you sure that we want to do this? Because this is pretty significant what we're doing here." So yeah, I think, we, and we, you know, we've we've got the business sort of over fifty percent increase in revenue, at a, almost to a break even when we were sitting at about twenty five million euro loss in the space of two years. So yes, yeah, it's, it's been significant that the improvement. In terms of the product, I mean, that's been the the strangest bit of it for me. Because I remember when we were doing Autumn Winter 22, which was, you know, almost within the first six months of me being in the business and being incredibly excited about it and, like, changing the face of Bellstaff. And everyone was saying about how collections in fashion, you sort of, you're always working so far ahead that by the time the collection hits the store, you're two years ahead of it. And you're thinking about the thing that's coming in, you know, 23, 24. And I was like, that's never going to happen to me. And it's totally happened to me. I'm like, wow, I've forgotten about this collection. But yeah, it's really, it's amazing to see it. Store it's amazing to see the new site and the new visuals and it all because I feel like internally within the business we've been working to that aesthetic and to that direction and to that brand position for a really long time but our customers haven't seen that really at all so Mm. yeah it's super exciting
0: and have there been any other things that have surprised you on the up or downside about that about well, I'm not going to be the boss that does X, Y, Z or worries about this. Have, have there been things a bit like you've just described? Have there been a few things like that, for better or for better or worse? For, um, for I su- you, you and your nearest and dearest when you'll be like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation now. You know? Yeah,
1: I mean, I suppose the thing that's been a really uh, an absolute pleasure to discover is that my belief around focus on people is absolutely the right thing. And that if you treat people with respect and kindness and you go into an organisation and try and create a sense of psychological safety and enable people freedom and the opportunity to be the masters of their own destiny, you can do incredible things. And I've always believed that. But being able to actually do it with a group of people and, you know, quite a young cohort, you know, the majority of our business are sort of under 30 or certainly, you know, early 30s and below a very different generation post COVID. I felt very privileged being able to do it and and very validated that actually you can do things in a way that is really ethical, really supportive of people and their their own personal requirements from a work environment that's been that's been fantastic
0: well i'm fascinated by this i've got one of my notes here just says talent question mark and what i what i wanted to sort of get into and the thread i wanted to sort of pull out is this idea that i think there's probably a misperception certainly in a lot of top level professional sport that, you know, you have the data, you have the metrics, you can test, you know, person A is stronger than person B, and you can tinker around the edges. We talked about the marginal gains approach and all, all the rest of it. And you can be very scientific, but of course, that completely omits the X factor of, people's attitude how they yeah. galvanize a team how they can inspire people by just their literal presence in a room do you think that there are i mean i you kind of have already addressed this to, to a degree Fran. but do you think there are things like that that work in all these different forums and you can you know back talented people to make seemingly impossible achievements and they can do it even if the data says that they can't and that's just true 100%. if you're racing tour de france or yeah. Beating two hours, or turning around a company that should be doing better. Yeah,
1: a hundred percent. I mean, I think when it comes to professional sport, there is obviously a threshold from a physicality perspective that you've got to have. <laughs> like, um, you can't turn a donkey into a racehorse. But I do think there is a an element of the, the sort of the human condition and getting excellence out of humans, which is we are all the same beings you know we all have the same needs we all have the same requirements we all thrive in certain environments and I think if you can create those environments for people you can exponentially improve performance and so that element of it for sure and I think identifying talent and what talent is and I think everyone has a talent of some kind and and if you can unleash that and harness that and give people the belief that that's something that they can you know they can strive for and that it's all relative isn't it it's like you might not be We used to use the analogy in cycling. It's like it's one of the very few sports in the world where eight guys go to the start line. And they all put the same amount of work in. And and seven of them will absolutely lay their lives on the line. But it's one guy who, if he wins, becomes a millionaire. It's the one guy who stands on the podium in the Chantelize. It's the one guy in the front of the newspapers. And there's very few sports that are like that, that kind of sacrificial element to the sport, which makes it beautiful and unique and romantic, but also at the core, grossly unfair. Because you could feel, you know, if you're... there's
0: a a brutality about it, which is amazing, isn't it? Exactly.
1: And actually, one of the ways that we always used to manage that within the team was understanding what success looked like for those guys on the team who weren't going to win. You know, so for some of them, it was they wanted to be the best guy in the crosswinds or they wanted to be the road captain or they wanted to have the chance to lead their own team prior to the Tour de France. So it was like if you can identify what success looks like for people and then use the kind of all of those sort of goals and consolidate them behind a a primary goal, you can really achieve incredible things. Because on the whole, most people don't want to achieve the same thing. What success looks like for you is going to be very different to what success looks like for me, right? But we can both achieve something very successful together if we understand what each other wants out of it.
0: Well, I think that's interesting about this point about what talent looks like. And we started off talking about this jump from one sector area to another. Unprecedented but unusual. Do, Do you think that there is still a problem in whether it's by sector or just a natural kind of small C conservatism in boardrooms or whatever, to, to make those kind of leaps and to say, look, do you know what? Interdisciplinary experience, that could be the difference maker here. That could be the driver, the bringer of innovation in and of, it, in and of itself. Do you think we still pay the price a little bit collectively for being a bit too cautious about how willing we are to broaden that idea of what talent is?
1: Yeah I mean I've only had the experience that I've had so I think and I wouldn't have made a jump to fashion you know what I mean I think sometimes those decisions get made by people who are more visionary or who have seen it themselves you know Brailsford was very much a person that was like if we can't figure something out let's bring somebody from a completely different walk of life in whether that's swimming or cricket or the army or emergency services and get them to look at the problem and see if they can figure it out because they'll think about it differently and I think Jim Ratcliffe is very similar you know he doesn't he doesn't see talent as your talent in pet chem or your talent in sport or your talent in fashion. He's like, your talent and I need talent to go and do this thing. So here's the thing and here's the parameters within which I want you to figure out the thing, but off you go and do it. And I think that recognising that and recognising how powerful I found that has enabled me to do that within my own business as well. And I think that the opportunity to say that everyone can achieve incredible things, but they have to believe it and you have to believe it. You know, You have to believe it in them. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a limit to majority of people would think very differently about who they put into businesses and who they bring into businesses because it's like, well, it's like CVs, isn't it? You sit and look at someone's CV and it's like, well, they haven't had enough time or experience doing the following things. It's like, well... I've never run a fashion business in my life, so and I'm doing all right. So you it's know, it's going okay. Yeah, so it, far. but exactly, and I think that's the bit. I don't really look at people's CVs. I meet them and talk to them. You know, the people we're promoting in the business at the moment is are the people who've shown real alignment to our values, who've really put in, who show ambition, enthusiasm, and everything else. I'm like, we can teach you the things you need to learn, but we can't teach you the attitude.
0: Tell me a bit about your kind of day to day. Are you somebody that likes to be kind of across everything are you saying i need to see what the sales strategies are and how are we playing with the wholesale model and retail and we're meeting our consumer or do you like to try and i don't know divide and conquer a little bit what's your what's your general approach
1: so in cycling very different because i was much much more knowledgeable about it so i was able to you know kind of oversee areas without having to have any level of granular detail because you can kind of see from a thousand feet or ten thousand feet is it right or not In this business, I went in and was like, I'm going to have to learn. And until I've learned it for myself, I'm not going to be comfortable delegating that completely. Because one of the biggest challenges I faced going into a completely new industry was my ability to quality assure what I was being told. So it's like if, a don't know, a marketing guy in a sports team tells me something, I'm going to 100% know if he's bullshitting me or not. If a commercial guy in a fashion company is telling me something, I've got fucking no idea. Do you know what I mean? Literally, sounds plausible, get it. Don't have any way of validating that, and I was a bit like, I'm going to have to rapidly learn because I don't like making decisions that don't come from a, a, some level of personal understanding. So my approach in Bellstaff was, I need to learn as quickly as possible. How do I learn as much as I can as quickly as I can? And I did that by meeting everyone. So I I literally met every single person in the business for an hour. Partially, that was about building connection with them and trust and everything else. But it was also, there was like, I had people who were like, head of merchandising. And I was like, okay, well, merchandising in my world is bottles with team names on and stuff, you know, whereas merchandising in fashion, it turns out, is a dark art that sits at the hub of everything. So learning it all and, and sort of understanding it all was, was really key. And I, and as I've learned it and as I've understood it, I also felt quite strongly that I wanted to write the strategy for the business I knew I needed to bring expert knowledge in and needed to bring specialists in. And I've had, I've brought an amazing team and have an amazing team around me who add massive amounts of value to that. But I basically decided slightly madly that I was just going to write out what I thought we needed to do in the next five years. And it ended up being like a 25 page magnum opus about, I felt a bit like Jerry Maguire. I'm either (laughs) going to send this, I'm either going to send this around the business and people are going to be like, she's crazy, or it's going to be good. And actually, it, it, it enabled me to realise where were all the gaps, where were all the things that I thought we were missing, where were the bits so I was like, well, that just doesn't make sense. We're not going to be able to do that. And that then formed our, our what is now our three-year plan, which was everything from wholesale, territory, growth, customer, category, you know, everything, competition. How are we going to do all of those things? And every time I had a bit of a gap in knowledge, I'd either go to a specialist in the business and interrogate it. I've been very, very lucky in that I've got Simon Mottram has always been a, from Rafa, has always been a... Huge kind of mentor to me. I've got massive amount of respect for what he did with rafa and he's a he was a very very valuable sounding board at the beginning. Similarly, Jeremy Darick from Sky at the very beginning, I sort of went and spoke to him. Sir Paul Smith, who's just phenomenal. So I had this like incredible team of people that I could go and speak to and be like, "What do you think of this?" <laughs> <laughs> and they were all very supportive and very helpful. So so yeah. So now now I'm starting to move slightly back from it and work on the business as opposed to in it. Yeah. In the beginning, I was I was all the way in.
0: Um, and tell me about, I don't know, stutter steps along the way, because again, one of these truisms that, you know, is when the things don't work, that you figure out yep. things more rapidly than you would when they, when they do. Have there already been really clear moments on the Bellstaff journey for you where that's happened? And yeah. do you subscribe to that idea that that is when that's the crucible in which you maybe do your best work?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I've always been better in crisis anyway. So I definitely learn more in failure than I ever do in success. I'm too busy partying in success to to actually sort anything out. Um, But no, I think with Bell stuff, it was, yeah, definitely learning through the mistakes, learning through. And again, I have no ego in this business because I've never done this before. Right. So I've got nothing to prove. I've got nothing to lose. And that's immensely freeing because I can write something down and say, right, we're going to do this. And then we start doing it. It doesn't work. I can be like, okay, I made a mistake. I don't think that's right. We need to go this way a little bit or that way a little bit. So, my original strategy that we wrote as a team, we were going to try and develop a bit of a sort of three legged store for the business with both e com, D2C and wholesale, but e com and the stores. And, and the reality is that's incredibly hard to do, particularly post COVID. E com is tailing off, I think, for most businesses. We only have five flagship stores wholesale you know we, because we've developed the range so specifically to be more commercial to speak to a broader customer base our wholesale is flying and so suddenly you end up in this slightly different scenario but i was totally comfortable doing that and changing and explaining that change and similarly we replatformed all of our digital infrastructure and all of our um so our erp which is like our entire sort of support structure behind the business and we sort of unplugged it on the 15th of september last year plugged in the new one and nothing worked and it was like holy fuck like catastrophic couldn't ship wholesale and funnily enough at my board meeting with the owners and I did my annual review of the business I was like that was the single decision that I made that if I could go back in time and do it differently I would but unfortunately I joined the business they'd already chosen the platform they'd chosen how they were going to do they would chosen the time frame however I didn't give enough time and credence to how massive an undertaking that was and so when the shit hit the fan it we're still unpicking it now But the learning of that, like, I now know how wholesale shipping works and how all of our distribution of our product works, how inbound works, how outbound works, how production works. And I would never have learned that if I hadn't been drowning in the we're not going to hit our numbers because we physically can't move stock around our business.
0: Well, look, as you have built this command, and as you said, I think it's really interesting, this idea of getting the command of the detail, then being able to gradually step back and back and get back to that 1,000, 10,000 foot yeah. view that you talked about in an area that you were more comfortable with for a longer time. What most excites you, Fran, then about what, what happens next? Is it about being able to enjoy the evolution of this amazing heritage brand? Is it about being able to bring that to a completely new generation or new geographies? or what what are the things that are most motivating for you? I don't know if we take a kind of medium-ish term a time horizon.
1: I'm super, super excited about the future of the brand because I think it's been a brand that's been so weighed down for so long by debt and bad decisions and bad infrastructure and bad ownership. And it's like we're suddenly kind of it feels like we're suddenly, you know, pardon the pun, but rising from the ashes of it all and, you know, we'll be on a stable revenue base, a stable, hopefully profitable base from an EBITDA perspective from next year and that gives you a freedom to be like, okay, now we can start spending money on growth and we can start spending money on proper customer acquisition and proper identification of territory growth and all those sorts of things that we just, it has been like, such a massive amount of change in such a short period of time that it's almost felt a bit like survival. It hasn't been survival because we've done significantly more than survive. But I'm excited now about how do we take this brand from a surviving business to a thriving, growing... I believe it has the power to be one of the super brands in men's contemporary fashion, I genuinely do. And that's where I'd like to see it You know, over the next five years.
0: Fran Miller, CEO of Bellstaff. And you can learn more about the brand, its storied history and those plans for the future, by heading to bellstaff.com now. Next up on the show, we take a little detour for another one of our branding corners, where we hear the story of a brand, its creation or its reinvention, from someone who knows a thing or two about the business of branding. Friend of the show, Bob Sheard, co-founder and CEO of the agency Fresh Britain, and a regular on this programme, stopped by to talk to us about another of his favourite projects.
2: New Balance, we were the first agency outside of Boston to work on it, and it gave us the advantage of being able to see it objectively. as It was a $1 billion brand, and it got there in a really functional way through non-standard widths. So everybody else was settling, maximum two to three wits. I think New Balance sold in late teens in terms of wits. So they built their entire business on people with fat feet, basically. Brilliant. And they tried to outsource as little as possible overseas, so as much of the product as possible was manufactured and made and constructed in the US. And they never paid anyone to wear their shoes. I thought it was brilliant. And I got there a couple of days early and was able to wander around Boston and... And you just realise, wandering around Boston, that that is almost the running capital of the world. It's got such a rich marathon running history, not just the race, but where else can you go in the world? And pride of place on the seafront is a picture of the tortoise and the hare. And that was it. That's New Balance. The hare is Nike. The tortoise is New Balance. And then I I looked at that and I read about Emil Zatopek and he said, if you want to win something, run 100 metres. That's Nike. If you want to experience something, run a marathon. And that's it. So Nike is chronomatic time. It's the time that's measured. It's winning and records. And there's a different kind of time, which is chironic time, which is the time that's experienced. And that's New Balance. So we were able to create sort of clear difference between there. But there was a much more fundamental and more moving thing that happened to me when I was there. So I was able to sort of figure it out, you know, that... This is an anti-fashion shoe brand. No one's ever died because of New Balance. I've got this incredibly responsible. It's not a fashion victim's brand. It's almost an anti-fashion brand. And the shoes are fundamentally pretty plain-looking shoes. They haven't got go-faster stripes on them and all that kind of stuff. And I was invited to go on a trip of some of their key stores by the guy that ran... He had the... I think it was the distribution rights to all of New Balance in all of New England so this was a gentleman that was not wanting for money he had tens of millions in the bank and they said he'll meet you in the lobby and when i met no one told me about him or anything other than that he was one he'd been there since the beginning and he i met him he turned around he had probably one of the worst facial disfigurements i've ever seen like, it took my breath away and i had a real adrenaline rush and I spent the whole day with him and uh, the whole day watching reactions. People that didn't know him were horrified. People that knew him just loved him. And I was just wondering that in a fashion company or, a, or one of the bigger sports brands, would this guy be the face of it, literally? And he took me to MIT, he took me to Harvard, and he drove me around and he said, what do you think of the shoes? And I said, I think they're pretty ugly, but I think that's part of the charm. He said, exactly. He said, no other brand do people look and understand what they're seeing you know and that this brand is all about people look past how it looks and that was such a metaphor for him that was incredibly moving and 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 then i I basically was able to build the brand off that basis that it's a brand that's so much more than being synthetic it's got a great story around the fact they don't pay anyone to wear their shoes it is absolutely at odds with the normal conventions of sports marketing and it was just a brilliant thing to work on and really moving. And and if ever there was a brand that literally walked the walk and didn't do any talking, <laughs> that was it.
0: And w- one thing that I kind of... A thread, if you like, Bob, that runs through these is the perception then of the, of the consumer, of the wider public. Does it matter to you, to the brand, if there's a pivot, there's a change in terms of the public perception? If there's a, a, a new generation of consumers who... Not just they don't buy into the origin story that you've helped surface, but maybe they just don't know it. What does that mean? Do you then have to sort of constantly update your approach, or should you not pivot in response to that? How, how do you think about that that evolution? Because that's kind of without the control of. The brand, or your team, or anyone else.
2: Yeah, well, it's the, it's the difference between facts and beliefs. So factually, there's an origin story, and people might not get or understand or even know the origin story. No, you know, hardly anyone's going to know the Artrex origin story, rock solid. But those facts and that that story shapes beliefs and behaviour, and be, and that belief, those beliefs and that behaviour will become evident and be meaningful for the consumer. So for for New Balance the fact that it defied the convention of a sports brand and sports marketing meant that it was kind of anti-establishment. It was an anti-fashion brand. And so whilst the person I'm about to talk about would not have known that that brand was born from non-standard wits, when she wore it down a catwalk at the end of her runway show, when Phoebe Filer walked out at the end of her show wearing New Balance, we knew we'd smashed it because it was an anti-fashion statement from the inside of the fashion establishment. It was brilliant.
0: Huge thanks once again to Bob Sheard of Fresh Britain, and do listen out for some more like that in the weeks ahead on the programme. That's all for this week, though. The show was masterfully mixed and expertly edited, as always, by Jack Dewers. My thanks to him. And, of course, thanks once again to Fran Miller and all the Bell Staff team and to Bob and the Fresh Britain crew, too. You can listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And, as always, thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.